Good evening to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Um, I hope that all of you have had a good weekend so far. I know my wife and I have. Uh, we just uh, spent the day in Colonial Williamsburg uh, today. That is, in case uh, any of you all uh, aren't familiar with Colonial Williamsburg, it's um, in Virginia. It was uh, capital of Virginia from 1699 up until 1780. Of course, my wife and I reside um, just on the outskirts of the present-day capital in Virginia being Richmond. But nonetheless, um, given that Williamsburg's only about an hour from Richmond, uh, no matter how many times we've been, we always learn something new. And to me, that is um, a very important thing, considering how much uh, we both enjoy history um, and knowing that uh, just how fortunate we are where we live in Virginia that we're an hour from the historic triangle area, being Williamsburg, Jamestown, and Yorktown, to an hour and 15 minutes west of us being Charlottesville, uh, Monticello, home to Thomas Jefferson, our nation's third president. Um, we're not far from the Shenandoah Valley, about two, two and a half hours away, two hours from D.C., two hours from the from Virginia Beach. So nonetheless, we are very fortunate uh, to live in a great state like Virginia that has so much uh, rich history. And we are going to be talking more tonight about Michael Schumacher's The Mighty Fitz, The Sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald. When I was on the air uh, the previous night, or a couple of nights ago rather, I should say, we learned about um, the final hours of the Edmund Fitzgerald and how she tragically um, vanished without sight. It's a very um, sad period of time now um, because, for one, this storm did a lot of damage. And we're not talking a hurricane, but yet hurricane-like winds when you have gusts of up to 90 miles an hour on Lake Superior. But knowing that here this this ship that had been the Titanic of the Great Lakes for nearly 17 years from the time she first set um, sail on Lake Superior back in 1958 up until November 10th of 1975. You know, she was setting so many records uh, left and right for cargo, um, for, for uh, what do you call it, for transporting cargo, not just cargo, but how much of it she was carrying, just over 26,000 tons being taconite pellets, but there is a huge void now on Lake Superior. And, and in the time uh, after she goes missing, there's a lot of uh, questions now. Questions that have to be um, asked, not just so much by a board of inquiry, but the Coast Guard and to other nearby ships that would have uh, come in contact with the Fitzgerald, most notably the Arthur Anderson. So tonight's discussion is going to talk about the Coast Guard, as well as uh, the Arthur Anderson, who was captained by Bernie Cooper. We're also going to learn about, for the next three days, what was... Um, found in terms of the search and rescue effort. Here's a lead-off question involving the Coast Guard. Did the United States Coast Guard perform a thorough search in locating the Edmund Fitzgerald? The answer is no. 
For starters, the men at the U.S. Coast Guard Station in Traverse City, Michigan, were paying more attention to conversations between ships in Whitefish Bay and on Lake Superior, and by the time they heard about the Fitzgerald going missing, these men assumed that nobody could have survived given how cold Superior's wa Lake Superior's water became. Well, they are right in the sense that, yes, nobody would have been able to have survived in waters, water temperature, rather, of uh, 30 degrees or less because of hypothermia setting in. But given that here the Fitzgerald has such a strong reputation and is the most well-respected of all ships on the Great Lakes, not that the others aren't, but, but just the name itself and knowing how many records she set, if I was one of those men and I heard that the Fitzgerald had gone missing, I would have been deeply concerned. I'm not saying that these men weren't concerned, but as we're going to find out um, here shortly, there's a reason for it. However, um, a U.S. Coast Guard U-16 plane was launched, but just before 11 o'clock, the plane arrived into the area where the Fitzgerald was said to have sunk, but she had already been missing for about three and a half hours. Okay. So at about 10 after 7 or, or close to 7.30, that's when the Fitzgerald officially first went off the radar site and went out of sight. So here we are three and a half hours later, and now we're starting to do a search and re rescue mission? There's, to me, this seems like a lot of miscommunication. Now, just real quick, if any of you want to know where Traverse City, Michigan is, I've never been there before. Of course, I haven't been to Michigan, but I, uh, with the exception of having flown into um, the airport in Detroit once. But um, as for Mi uh, Traverse City, that's up in northern Michigan. It's not far from the, um, from the uh, Mackinac Bridge, which connects the mainland to the upper uh, peninsula of Michigan. So it's uh, Traverse City is uh, in northern Michigan. Um, but that's where the U.S. Coast Guard station was. The U.S. Coast Guard's search for the Edmund Fitzgerald and her crew wasn't one of the uh, organization's greatest moments. For starters, uh, Captain Bernie Cooper of the Arthur Anderson pleaded with the Sault Ste. Marie station and, of course, Sault Ste. Marie is up in the uh, Upper Peninsula of Michigan. But Captain Bernie Cooper, the Arthur Anderson, had to plead with the St. Sault Marie Station to take his concerns very seriously about the Fitzgerald's uh, well-being, and the, as well as the possibility of it going out of sight, being missing. Two and a half hours had gone by from the time the first call to the, into the Sioux Station or the Sioux Lock Station at 8.25 p.m. to the arrival of the HU-16 plane, three and a half hours after the Fitzgerald disappeared. The chances of finding survivors were slim to none. Let me ask you all this. Uh, do you think the Coast Guard was deliberately negligent, or should I say, is it safe to say that the Coast Guard didn't care about the Edmund Fitzgerald? I don't believe, how do I put this? Um, the Coast Guard did care 
about the freighters, especially the Fitzgerald. The problem is that for many in the Coast Guard, they still have this assumption that, well, if the ship went missing, there's still a good likelihood in the end it might resurface. Because it turns out that in years past, some ships who went missing in bad storms somehow miraculously found their way into, um, into safety. Or in other words, they made it out alive. That probably was the case nine times out of ten. But there was always that one time where a ship didn't um, make it back safe. And in this case, the Edmund Fitzgerald didn't. What's, um, who is uh, Frederick Stonehouse? He is a Great Lakes historian. He said that the Coast Guard's rescue effort on November 10th of 1975 could be best described as a conspiracy of ineptitude. That sounds harsh. Now, does anybody know what the word conspiracy means? Well, in Latin, it's conspirari, meaning that um, there has to be two or more people involved to, to form a conspiracy or to conspire. In the case of what Frederick Stonehouse said, being that the Coast Guard's rescue efforts were a conspiracy of ineptitude, what he is referring to here is that the U.S. Coast Guard didn't have the proper search and rescue vessels on hand to conduct a thorough search. The group itself does a good job with locating lost fishermen out on the waters, but they are but it's a non-functioning organization when it comes to um, doing major rescues at sea. And we're talking about iron ore freighters. I think it probably is fair to say that, you know, yes, for, for a long time when a vessel went lost, that was it. But this may have been the first time where the Coast Guard actually had received word from other ore freighters, iron ore freighters, about an actual freighter of theirs being missing to where it did require a search and rescue effort. And I think it's fair to say that yes, the Coast Guard did not have the proper vessels. Their vessels were smaller sized vessels in large part because they're, they're usually searching for those who are missing from small ships like their size. But just before 9 p.m., the Arthur Anderson arrives into Whitefish Bay and then radios the Coast Guard in Sault Ste. Marie to officially report the Fitzgerald missing. Well, given just how severe the weather in general was on November 10th of 1975, were the search options very limited? The answer is yes. The closest thing available that the United States Coast Guard had for a search operation mission was a 110-foot was a harbor tug anchored at Sault Ste. Marie known as the Naugatuck. The Naugatuck, however, was restricted by its vessel classification from heading into open seas where winds exceeded 60 knots. I think it's fair to say that if you sent this ship, given that it was 110 feet long, out into the seas, it would have been blown it would have been uh, blown away 
given just how how uh, severe the um, wind force was, given that it's exceeding 60 knots. But I don't think any ship, regardless of how big or small it was that the Coast Guard had would have been able to have offered, would have survived out on those uh, rough waters. The weather was too rough for smaller Coast Guard patrol boats, as well as motor lifeboats, to help in the search. Here's a bonus question right here. Which vessel did the Coast Guard ask to help to help assist them in the search and rescue operation for the Edmund Fitzgerald? The answer is the Arthur Anderson. And Captain Bernie Cooper, as many of you all could imagine, would have been completely caught off guard. Not just completely off guard by this request, but Captain Bernie Cooper himself had been through a hell of an ordeal out on the waters just making it to safety. But in the end, he finally buckled under pressure by taking his ship back out onto the waters of Lake Superior. And these are very, very, you know, unsafe waters given with the storm that has occurred, uh, given more likely from what I had mentioned from the previous night's podcast about the description of how the Fitzgerald sank. I think some people out there would have said that um, what the Coast Guard had asked of Bernie Cooper to do, it was suicide. And I would say so too, because it's one thing to have made it into Whitefish Bay with the storm that was being faced, that these men had faced, only to go back out into the water again, wondering, hey, if we go, how far we go out? And are we going to come back alive? There's no guarantee on that. Would there be another um, freighter to join the Arthur Anderson in the search of the Fitzgerald? Uh, the answer is yes, the William Clay Ford. These, these two freighters were the only ones that actually joined the U.S. Coast Guard in search of the Fitzgerald. Both ships traveled on a parallel course to search the area, but all they came upon were waves. And it's very possible that both ships themselves could have passed directly over the Fitzgerald's wreckage. For Captain Bernie Cooper, the night, the night's long search for the Fitzgerald was nerve-wracking. Both ships had covered both U.S. and Canadian waters, coming away with nothing. And remember, people, Lake Superior is on Canadian waters as well. And the Fitzgerald sunk in Canadian waters. So it's not just one part of, of water. It's more than just the American side. It is um, the Canadian side as well. Now, on November 11th, the day after the Fitzgerald uh, sank, Captain Cooper, the Anderson, continues a vigil of their own. The ship and crew still had a load of taconite to deliver into Gary, Indiana, but they weren't anywhere near the final leg into the Sioux locks. Well, when the weather um, changes for the worse, everything changes for the ship itself, not just for the ship itself, but for any ship. So here you are on course thinking that, oh, the, the weather, there's a 50% chance that the weather could turn for the worse or it won't, but 
regardless, we could still make it to our final destination with with very limited uh, problems. Well, the answer is incorrect, or should I say no. Uh, when the weather changes, everything else um, is impacted. So the people in Gary, Indi Gary, Indiana are wondering, hey, when is this taconite going to come? I mean, yes, there's been a storm, but is the taconite still going to be in good condition? It's something else to think about. At around 8.07 a.m. on um, November 11th, Captain Cooper's fears were, in fact, confirmed. The Arthur Anderson had discovered the first crucial sign of evidence indicating that the Fitzgerald had sunk. Floating on the surface nearly nine miles east of where the Fitzgerald's wreckage would be found, the first sign turned out to be the leftover remains of lifeboat number one. Later in the day, more debris would be discovered such as lifeboat number two, including both inflatable life rafts, to 20 of the ship's cork life preservers, there was no evidence to prove that life-saving devices had been used. The Fitzgerald sunk so quickly to where nobody on board had time to make any escape. I can't imagine uh, being not just on the Arthur Anderson, but say the Coast Guard as well, but most notably the Arthur Anderson because Bernie Cooper and his crew were managed to work through thick and thin to help the Fitzgerald uh, left and right to see to it that this ship who had lost both of its antennas had taken on water and knowing that they had hit a shoal early on Captain Cooper and, and Captain Ernest McSorley, before he and his crew vanished, McSorley knew that Cooper was sticking his neck out for him. And of course, Ernest McSorley would have done the same thing too had this been had the uh, Arthur Anderson experienced all this. But I can't imagine what um, Bernie Cooper's um, expressions were. I, I don't believe deep down he probably ever got over this. I don't know. I don't think anybody could get over it, knowing that just how revered and respected um, those who uh, worked on the Edmund Fitzgerald were, whether it was Captain Peter Pulser or uh, Ernest McSorley or anybody else who was a part of this ship. This ship's 29 men were family to one another. The communities were family as well because everybody looked after each other in the best of times and in the worst of times. And in the next podcast, uh, we'll talk some, some more about how the sinking of the Fitzgerald impacted um, families who lost their loved ones. But nonetheless, I know for, Ernest, uh, for uh, Captain Bernie Cooper to see both of these lifeboats including the life in the inflatable life rafts to the cork preservers, seeing all these things out on the surface, floating, knowing that there was just no chance for survival, 
knowing that all 29 of these men met a horrible death or, or horrible deaths in just a short amount of time. And just so that you all know, Lake Superior's water temperature all year round is, is pretty cold. So for the men who lost their lives on the Fitzgerald, their bodies didn't uh, automatically disintegrate or decompose. Did the condition of the lifeboats tell a story to how the Fitzgerald's life came to a violent end? The answer is yes. Lifeboat number one consisted only the forward 16 feet of the boat designed to hold 50 people. 50. As for lifeboat number two, it was found in one piece, but its bow was split at the stem. A huge hole had been torn into its side. The hole had been buckled and dented. Neither lifeboat had a chance to be used given how violent the storm itself was. Besides lifeboats, life rafts, and life preservers being found, what other items turned up? Well, eight oars, or should I say oar pieces, to a piece of sounding board, a wooden fender block, wooden stool, a stepladder, eight flotation tanks from lifeboats, a lifeboat rudder. All items were sent first to the Coast Guard station and then to Ogle Bay Norton. And what's significant about November 13th of 1975? The search for the Edmund Fitzgerald ended at 10.12 p.m. Not a single body was seen or ever recovered. Well, this is a very sad time, not just for not just for the maritime industry, but for the families of, of really, and I guess you could say it in a way, 29 families who have lost uh, loved ones. All 29 of these men, most of them were married. Some could have been single. But regardless of their marital status, they all still left family behind. And I think it's fair to say that probably none of these family members ever got over their loss. Because all of these surviving family members, widows, to sons and daughters, to grandchildren, nephews, nieces, all of them knew that their, that their loved ones who died at sea Spent a, life, spent a lifetime making the sea as their career. For many of these men, they worked their entire way up the ladder. Maybe not all of them attained the status of captain or first, second, or third mate, but everyone had a story to tell on this ship or on any other ship that, has, that, lost, that resulted in loss of life on the Great Lakes. There have been many ships... Uh, some in recent, some there at least two ships. One in 1958, the Carl Bradley, which sunk in Lake Michigan, had a sad, tragic ending similar to the Fitzgerald. But when a ship sinks, it's not just those who die that have to be remembered. 
we have to remember the families who lost their loved ones. And as I've said before, you look at towns along the Great Lakes that are dependent upon um, the shipping industry. And these towns are dependent upon getting goods transported from point A to point B. These towns' blood is, is in the water. For many of these men, they probably didn't know anything else in their life other than to carry on the traditions that men of their uh, of previous generations had done. You could say that in some ways, working on the Great Lakes or being a sh- uh, being a part of a ship, some ways is like being a coal miner or a commercial fisherman. You're carrying on a tradition, but at the same time, by carrying on the tradition. There's always the uncertainty that goes with it. Like when you go down in a coal mine, for example, there's always a 50% chance that you'll come out alive. There's a 50% chance you might not. So how do I say this? Somebody's got to do this kind of work. Being out on Lake Superior, Lake Michigan, Huron, Erie, Ontario, it may seem glamorous at first, But when the gales of November come in, there's really nothing glamorous about it. Because when you go out in November, you're either going to come home alive or or you may not make it. That's why November is often the most unpredictable month of being out on the water. Why is it that the Fitzgerald had so many had so many years of good fortune in November? Why did she stump why did she have this terrible mishap that resulted in the loss of life now? Why why did uh, the Arthur Anderson get spared? Not that the Arthur Anderson should not have gone down, but how is it that the Arthur Anderson was nearby the Fitzgerald the entire time? I mean not um, smack dab against one another, but they were what ten miles apart. But how is it that the Arthur Anderson was spared? It's a the, these are tough questions. But for twenty nine men to lose their lives is very heartbreaking. These twenty nine men made so many sacrifices. And now they're gone. Of course, here we are in 2020. They've been gone for 45 years. But yet their story should not be forgotten. Yes, the Coast Guard may not have um, had its finest um, moments in the search for the Fitzgerald. But we also must remember, too, that the Coast Guard, the Coast Guard's primary job was to uh, help fishermen who went missing small vessels that went missing. They had never been in a situation before in dealing with a 730-foot ship that just went out of sight in the middle of the night and was gone forever. They never had dealt with that before. So it is fair to say that the Coast Guard in 1975 in the aftermath of this loss did have time on its side to learn from from mistakes in terms of um, communicate of um, 
improper communications to where down the road in the future they will be better prepared to know how to conduct a thorough search of a missing um, freighter ship, that of uh, a Laker. Well, folks, we've uh, covered a lot of ground tonight. And remember this, the waters may seem calm, but just because they seem calm at the moment, it doesn't mean that they'll stay calm the rest of the way on a voyage, regardless of whether you're on Superior, Huron, Erie, Michigan, or Ontario, no matter where you are on the Great Lakes, calmness can change in a matter of minutes, especially in November, come the gales of November. And yes, does anyone know where the love of God goes when the waves turn the minutes to hours? Well, God didn't abandon those men who died on the Fitzgerald. He was with them. But God also knew that he, had no, he didn't have control over Mother Nature. But, what, but it is safe to say that God, is that God himself from above is still looking after the men who lie at the 530 feet below the surface of Lake Superior. He knows those men aren't suffering anymore. At least we could say that all 29 of those men are together. And perhaps they're down there together reminding us from above that the gales of November will, will always still be with us and that Superior herself never gives up her dead, especially in November. And no matter how sophisticated the technology has improved, even in, in 45 years since, since the Fitzgerald sank, Mother Nature will still prevail and Superior herself won't give up her dead. But we must always honor those men who died because they did pay they did pay a price, but not a bad price. They paid a price for what they were passionate about and for and for ensuring that um, that uh, people's well-being in terms of goods, most notably the taconite, which could be converted into steel, that the steel itself served the greater communities along the Great Lakes for the greater uh, good of, uh, of the American people. Well, thank you for listening. We're gonna, I'm going to be back on the air here again soon. And when, we're, when, when we do convene again, we're going to talk about the families of the Fitz, who had lost loved ones on the Fitzgerald and how they are coping with this. There is a church, I'll tell you this, there is a church in Detroit called the Mariner's uh, Cathedral. And it's a cathedral that uh, is still in use today, but it, it's home to um, all religious sects regardless of what Protestant denomination you're in, but also uh, if you are of uh, Catholic faith. But this cathedral in Detroit is where families would go to pray for those who were out on the waters, but also for those who had passed away on the waters, or I should say on the Great Lakes waters. Thank you, and uh, stay safe. Uh, good night.